Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the podcast. This is the murder of Bruiser Brody, a pro wrestling injustice. Ah, oh, Matt. I knew it was Matt. Even before I looked at the name, it's uh, it's either if it's is it is it Kevin also does these. It's one or the other because they know stuff about wrestling, and all I know about wrestling is uh, it's it's like not pantomime. What's the right word? Like it's not real, and it's all like a soap opera with dudes oiling themselves up and getting in a ring. Are you telling me you're gay? I'm upsetting all the people who love wrestling. Um, let's just uh, let's just jump in, shall we? The format of the show is I've never read this before. Uh, we're going to read it together and explore, my friends. And try not to be too turned off if you don't like wrestling. <laughs> Even if you just stick around for my torture of it. Ring the bell, my friends. We're stepping back into the squared circle. Well, we're more like forcing Simon back into it. Preach! But no matter, it's everyone's favourite time, pro wrestling time with Matt. While pro wrestling is popular worldwide, it's still very much an acquired taste. And the same can be said of hardcore wrestling. Wait, what's hardcore wrestling? <laughs> is this actual wrestling? Wait, wrestling's a real sport though, right? Like, what was this called? Pro wrestling. Um, wait, oh, wait, is wrestling actually a thing? And I'm thinking of worldwide entertainment, WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, Federation, WWE. Look. Is, is, okay, wait, is wrestling real? Are we talking about the real stuff today? Now I can already hear Simon saying, what the f is hardcore wrestling? Bingo! Well, Simon and dear audience, it's what I like to call violence personified. For those who just think pro wrestling is fake, go watch a death match and you might be singing a different tune. Hitting people in the head with steel chairs and falling off ladders is all par for the course when it comes to hardcore wrestling. Not to mention being sent through flaming tables, being dumped on thumbtacks or broken glass, being torn apart by barbed wire with the ropes at times even being made of barbed wire and bodies being caught in explosions and fireworks. This is not real. No one's... Wait, has someone actually taken WWE and be like, yeah, let's do that with all the crazy violence and let's do it for real because that's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's a smorgasbord of insanity and sometimes borders on felony assault. I'm sure it borders on assault. Like most sports or like a lot of sports would border on assault if it wasn't like, oh, it's sport, isn't it? Like boxing, what we do? Well, we're just going to assault each other. Hell, I've seen someone get their forehead sliced open with a pizza cutter and someone else get a hypodermic needle pierced through the inside of their cheek and no, I'm not kidding. This can't be real. What? I can't believe this is real. It's nuts. It's bloody. At times, it's stomach churning, but it has its fans. And if it's done right, it can be damn entertaining. I bet it's entertaining, but it's not something I ever want to watch because you'd be like, oh no, he's really got a needle in his face. This isn't WWE. How is this not as popular as WWE when this is when it, this is real and WWE is not? Today, we're going to discuss the death of one of the originators of the hardcore, hardcore style of wrestling. His name is still known by hardcore wrestling fans the world over, and he's seen in Japan as one of the greatest foreign wrestlers to ever step foot in their country. His name was Frank Goodish, but he's best known the world over as Bruiser Brody. Yeah, if his name is like, what's his name? It's Goodish. That's his name. It's like, he's a goodish wrestler. Ah. He made a name for himself all over the USA, traveled the world, and spent years honing his craft. He was a mountain of a man at 6 feet 8 inches tall, that's 2.03 meters, and 300 pounds or 136 kilograms. He had a large bushy beard and a mane of unruly black hair. He was intimidating from the word go, but when he decided to get hardcore, he certainly would. Dude, all I can think, like when people are this tall, it's like traveling the world. I guess he must... Is he rich? I don't know, is he flying? I guess, it, you know, maybe he's not flying in his own plane, but at least he's like flying in the front of the plane. But like, people who are this tall, like six foot eight, I'm like, I'm 5'11". 
And if I'm in an economy seat, it's like, ah, this is fine. But if I was two inches taller, this would be uncomfortable. And six foot eight, you'd just be like, <laughs> all I can think of is how miserable. I feel like there's a sweet spot, like six foot. It's a good height to be. You know, not too tall, not too short, just right. From chairs to chains to barbed wire, he was an animal inside the ring and his face was usually covered in a layer of blood before the show was over. His forehead was a canvas of deep scars that were always visible and he was both admired and feared by fans. <laughs> They're scared of him. Outside the ring, though, he was known to be intelligent and a sweetheart. He loved his family, he loved his fans, and he had a mind for business, making his intention known that at some point he wanted to buy into a promotion since that was where the real money was. He simply wanted to make a good living for his wife and son, and perhaps that's what led to his untimely end. So everyone, as the darkness washes over us again, let's look into the circumstances surrounding the death of one of the most beloved big men in the history of wrestling, and how the circumstances surrounding his death reeks of corruption and backstabbing of the highest order. This is the murder of Bruiser Brody and the tale of how his killer simply got away with it. I'm already blown away by this episode, finding out that hardcore wrestling is a thing. Some dude got stabbed in that. Why is there a hypodermic needle in the ring? Like, what the f***? The Wild Man of Pro Wrestling. Frank Donald Goodish was born on June 18, 1946, and going forward, we'll simply refer to him as Brody. Not much is known about his early life, but what is known is that he was a star athlete and was a successful football player at Warren High School in Warren, Michigan. After that, he was a very successful player in college at West Texas State, now known as West Texas A&M University. Why have I heard of that? I feel like I've heard of that one. But like normally when it's American universities, I'm like, yeah, Berkeley, Stanford, Princeton, Harvard, like all the big ones. But Texas A&M. Was there like a mass shooting there or something? Or is it just a really good university that I've totally forgotten about? He married a woman named Nola Marie Nice on June the 4th, 1968, but they ended up getting divorced just two years later on October the 12th, 1970. During his time with the NFL, however, Brody was introduced to the world of pro wrestling, so he decided to throw his own hat into the ring. To do that, he had to train under the best, so he sought out Fritz von Erich. Or if Fritz was a legend in the wrestling industry, the patriarch of the legendary von Erich family, and all his sons followed in his footsteps, becoming well-known wrestlers in their own right. Brody started taking part in wrestling matches all over Texas and Louisiana, then started to travel the country, making impacts within all the territories across America. Before anyone asked, the territories in pro wrestling were smaller wrestling companies under the umbrella of the National Wrestling Alliance that spanned across America. It was not a question I thought to ask, to be honest, Matt, but okay. He became known as both Bruder Brody and King Kong Brody, and he was a marvel to look at. A giant of a man who would come into the ring swinging a steel chain in a circle over his head, <laughs> dressed in a fur vest and black trunks with fur-covered boots. Okay. He looked like a wild man with his intense eyes and facial expressions, his wild curly hair, and his unkempt beard that he grew out until it covered his chest. This guy sounds like he sounds like he belongs in the jungle. There's a quote. I didn't ever guess that I was going to be a professional wrestler. Once I started in professional wrestling, learned the ropes. If I had to do it all over again, I think I would probably even pass up my three years in the NFL and devote them to wrestling because it's been that good to me. Yeah. Also, you don't get paid, right? Like college football, the people don't get paid, which seems like a right scam, in my opinion. So I mean, like, yeah, just go do some, well, I guess maybe the same is true for wrestling. I don't even know. Like American sports is so weird. It's so specific and there's so many weird rules. I want, did I, did I tell you I once watched an American football game? No. I mean, I have, yes, but I'm actually thinking of baseball. I once watched a baseball match. Baseball game? Baseball, 
Baseball match. Baseball match. I'm going to go with baseball match. Yes. And it was so slow. There were like six rounds or whatever it's called. Home runs. Runs? Six runs. Like total in the whole thing. And people were like, oh, it's an exciting game. And I was like, really? <laughs> okay. The only reason I watched it is because it was in Vegas and I was pretty broke. So I didn't have a lot of money to go gamble. So I was just like, what, what gambling lasts a long time? Sports betting. So I bet like $20 on a sports betting thing and sat in this lounge and watched this baseball game. And in Vegas, you can smoke inside. So I smoked a cigar inside. <laughs> it's kind of weird. And baseball's boring. Sorry, Americans. And don't, don't be like, well, Simon, soccer's boring as well. Football's boring. I'm like, yes, it's also boring. It's just people running around a ball. Like football, the only sport it ends where it's like, what's the score? Ah, oh, nil-nil. <laughs> no one scored at all. It was 90 minutes long. During a tour through Australia, he met a lovely New Zealander by the name of Barbara Smith. Barbara agreed to travel back to the US with Brody, and the couple were married in Las Vegas in 1972. It wasn't an easy life, especially with Brody traveling for up to nine months of the year, but they made it work. But when his son, Jeffrey Dean Goodish, was born in 1980, Brody's priorities changed. It is best to ensure that Jeffrey would have the best life possible and that both he and Barbara would never want for anything. Their happiness was all that mattered to him. Barbara always reported that Brody was a kind soul, very passionate and intelligent, and that he always remained true to himself when he was at home. He was nothing like the monster that his fans would watch during hardcore wrestling matches. To quote her, It was like this character that he created, that it was separate from the person I knew. I would take him to the airport, and he would just be dad, husband, get out of the car, had his hair pulled back, walk through those doors, take his hair down, he became Bruiser Brody on the other side, and I could actually see the whole transformation take place. Brody got a path of destruction through company after company, you name it, he wrestled there, and he dominated them all. He even went over to World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE, which was known as WWWF at the time, in 1976, and was selected to wrestle the legendary Bruno Sammartino for the WWWF Championship. And over in Japan, he'd become an icon for his runs in All Japan Pro Wrestling, AJPW, and New Japan Pro Wrestling, JPW. Brody became an attraction, and when he showed up to take part in a match, he drew a crowd. People came from all over to see Bruiser Brody arrive, raise hell, beat someone until they were a bloody mess in the middle of the ring, and then leave. Hell, back in the day, people were legitimately scared of him. He'd come down to the ring, swinging his massive chain, and the fans by the entranceway would scatter to get out of his way. Yeah, of course people were scared of him. He sounds terrifying. I thought at first Matt was referring to people in the ring. Can you imagine fighting this dude? You'd just be like, no, I'm not scared. You'd be like, well, then you are a psycho. In Dark Side of the Ring, WWE Hall of Famer Tony Atlas, a friend of Brody's, explains that Brody's reputation in the business was that he was a main eventer and could make you a lot of money, so that's why he was popular. It was why so many promoters wanted him, because he could put asses in seats. It was this fact that he was an attraction, a main event draw that gave Brody a lot of pull and power over the promoters who wanted him and the other wrestlers who wanted to work with him. He wanted to protect his image and his brand, and so most of the time he refused to lose. <laughs> okay, he's just like, how are you going to win all your matches? Well, I'm just not going to lose, am I? It's like, okay, brilliant strategy. But it seems to actually work for him because he's a giant beast of a man. He would tell the promoter that it didn't make sense for him to lose being the big monster that he was, and he wanted to keep his top spot. And old Brody wasn't afraid to take liberties with the other wrestlers if he didn't like them or thought they were below him. He was known to work stiff, aka beating the living piss out of someone in the ring for real, and some people didn't take too kindly to all of that. Wait, is this real or fake? Because you're saying, like, beat the piss out of someone in the ring for real. Why do we need to say that? I thought this was all real. This was hardcore wrestling. What's going on? 
So once more, quote Tony Atlas, he was a pretty decent guy. If he didn't like you, he'd beat the living crap out of you. But I've just seen Brody take people in the ring many a time and beat them unmercifully. He would just beat them to death. <laughs> Brody knew he had a persona to protect, and he didn't care what anyone else thought about it, as long as he got paid, as long as he brought in a crowd, and as long as he could provide for his family. To quote the man himself from an out-of-character interview, I don't know about the other professional wrestlers. I only know about Bruiser Brody. And when I go in the ring, it doesn't matter whether I'm in Texas or New York, and it doesn't matter whether people like or dislike me. I'm going to be just as aggressive every night. Bruiser Brody was a legend in his own time, but that didn't make him invincible. And tragically, that was a lesson that he would learn soon enough. Just before we continue with today's episode, let me tell you about our fantastic sponsor, and that would be Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that allows you to sell at every stage of your business. Look, whether you're just launching, whether you're just getting started, maybe you, maybe you haven't even sold a single thing yet. Well, with Shopify, you can. It, it lets you get your store up and running, and then you'd be like, let's see if people want to buy this. And let's say that your business does incredibly well, which I mean, that's all you'll hope for, isn't it? Then down the road, you're like, oh no, at some point I'm gonna have to switch to like a, a provider for the big boys because I'm selling thousands of things. No, 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 no. No, Shopify have got you covered. Whether you're just starting out or whether you're well down the path and they make everything super easy. I brought it up before, like a mate of mine ran an online store that he built like, this was, I don't know if it's pre-Shopify, but it was before Shopify was like a big thing. And he spends an absolute fortune building this website to sell stuff online. And honestly, it, it still wasn't that great. And then Shopify came along and he's like, yeah, yeah, no, I just redid it in Shopify. And uh, it didn't cost me a fortune and it isn't rubbish. <laughs> in fact, it's amazing because it's Shopify. Shopify help you sell everywhere. They've got an e-commerce platform, but they've also got an in-person POS system. Look, so whatever and wherever you're selling, Shopify have got you covered. They help turn your browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkouts up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And when you consider that, like, well, it's all your sales and stuff, that's going to be a lot of money by the end of the day, isn't it? Look, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 100 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to help support, help support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash casual. All lowercase, go to shopify.com slash casual now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash casual. Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is probably one of the most well-known vacation spots in the world. It's located in the northeast section of the Caribbean Sea, approximately 1,000 miles 1,600 kilometers southeast of Miami, Florida, between the Dominican Republic and the U.S. Virgin Islands. It's a tropical paradise that is known for a wide variety of fruits and, of course, rum. So all those nights that we can't remember after indulging in too much Don Q or Bacardi is all thanks to our Puerto Rican friends. Wait, is Bacardi from Puerto Rico? Like, I've had some really nice rums from Puerto Rico. A friend of mine's from Puerto Rico. Would not rank Bacardi as a nice rum. <laughs> it's pretty grim. It's also one of the first things I got, like, super drunk on. And so it's always had, like, held, like, a bad spot in my mind to look with tequila. Oh. Also, tequila tastes kind of rough. Like, rum's like, okay, it's nice. Tequila, though, is like, ooh, oh. Mm. I mean, mix it up in a drink, fine. But even then, it's like, mm, uh, why? Bacardi 151 was my arch nemesis in college and on beach trips back in the day, but that's a story or lack thereof for another time. Well, me too, Matt. You and I together. Although I don't know what Bacardi 151 is. I've just said Bacardi, regular Bacardi. 
which I thought was Brocardi for the longest time. Yes, everyone loves the white sandy beaches of the island of enchantment, and tourism is the number one money-making business there, especially in the summer. However, there is one further thing that Puerto Rico is going on, and that's pro wrestling. The WWC, or World Wrestling Council, is a pro wrestling promotion in Puerto Rico, founded originally as Capital Sports Promotion in 1973 by Carlos Colon, Victor Jovica, and Gorilla Monsoon. Wait, Gorilla Monsoon's the name of a dude? <laughs> Is that what goes on the paperwork? It's like, yeah, so I sit down, gentlemen. Okay, if you just need to sign this, this will establish Capital Sports Promotions. And uh, just sign your name right there, Gorilla. I mean, Mr. Monsoon. <laughs> they were known for good wrestling, but what they were really known for was violence. I mentioned hardcore wrestling earlier and that it had a firm place in WWC, and it still does. Back in the day, though, if there was a big show running, it was expected that the wrestling mat would be stained with blood at least three to four times a night, turning it from its normal white tan coloring to a bright red, and the fans ate it up. They wanted to see the brutality. They wanted to see people get hurt. Whether it was barbed wire-covered two-by-fours or flaming ring ropes, the fans couldn't get enough. And what made it all the better was back then, the fans were still under the impression that everything they saw in the ring was real, the wrestlers really hated each other, and they wanted to kill each other, and that they were their characters. Okay, so it's another, like, blended... It's not like WWE, which is just, like, dancing, basically. But it's something in between. <laughs> this is very... Wrestling is such a confusing thing. Anyone who's really into wrestling will be like, yes, yeah, Simon, it just works like this. And I'm just like, I just don't get it. It's really weird. They would assault the wrestlers they didn't like if they managed to get through the barricade. And if they couldn't, they'd throw things at you. Oh my gosh. To quote both Tony Atlas and fellow legend Abdullah the Butcher from their interviews from Dark Side of the Ring, Abdullah, these people were violence. They wanted violence. Atlas, people throw rocks at you. They throw piss on you. They throw urine on you. They throw feces on you. What the f So some dudes in the audience just like taking a sh in his hand and then throwing it in the ring? This is some wild sh Puerto Rico and anywhere else that does this. Abdullah, they stoned me. They used to take cups, put glass or stones in them, and throw them at me. They wanted to see somebody get hurt. They want to see somebody get carried out on a stretcher. Every place you go, they love violence. And speaking of Abdullah, it was in Puerto Rico that he and Brody would have many of their bloodiest wars in the ring. They would battle in the ring, they would battle at ringside, they would even go in the crowd fighting and throwing chairs at each other. Brody would hit Abdullah with his chain, Abdullah would stab Brody in the head with a fork that he always kept with him, and every single time they would bleed profusely to the delight of the audience. So this sh is real. That's real, right? The fans thought that Brody was his character, a mountain of a man covered in hair, insane in the mind, and violent as a monster. It was this misconception, this unfortunate blending of fiction and non-fiction pro wrestling back then, that only made the coming case even more tragic and frustrating. Invader 1 Bruiser Brody wasn't everyone's favorite, though, and he had made at least one enemy along the way, Jose Huertas Gonzalez. Jose was born on March 17, 1947, in San Lorenzo, Puerto Rico, and was both a wrestler and booker for the World Wrestling Council. I mentioned this in the Benoit script last year, but just as a reminder, a booker in wrestling is one of the people in charge. It's up to the booker to put the match card together and decide on who wins the match and how long matches go, working alongside the producers and official writers. So Jose had a position of power in the company, and Brody didn't like that one bit. So this is fake. Ah! It's so confusing! It's like, okay, it's mostly fake, or it's scripted and this kind of stuff, but sometimes it just gets real because they do actually hate each other. Okay, I kind of get it. I guess 
I'm confused for the same reason that people were confused at the beginning because they weren't sure, wait, is this real? Is it not real? And they're just like, ah, we're just, 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 who knows? Just let it be, enjoy it. That kind of vibe, right? You see, Jose was a pretty big name in Puerto Rico. Not only was he the right-hand man of Carlos Colon, the owner of WWC, that guy's gone unfortunate. Does that, is that pronounced some, somehow different in Spanish? Because in English, his name is Carlos Colon, as in the, p- the place like where your food gets turned into shit. Not only was he the right-hand man of Carlos Colon, the owner of the WWC, but he was beloved by many of the local fans for his work as Invader One, a masked gimmick he performed under. And yes, Simon, the number one in his name is intentional, as he was on a team called the Invaders, which included himself, Invader 2 and Invader 3. God, the folks of the past sure could get creative. Regardless, Brody wasn't the biggest fan of Jose either. He was one of those people who just rubbed Brody the wrong way. And so when they were paired together in the ring, Brody had his way with him. This first happened several years prior, during Brody's time in the WWWF. It's a hell of a mouthful and acronym, isn't it? Where Brody refused to sell, taking his moves and making it look like they hurt for Jose, and beat him to a pulp. This continued to happen whenever Brody and Invader got in the ring, and Brody would just beat him from pillar to post, doing his best to keep up the image of the unstoppable monster wrestler for the fans, all at the expense of Jose. Jose's like, what the f***, dude? I'm supposed to beat you. Can you stop actually hitting me? We're wrestlers. This is a dance, Brody. Dirty Dutch Mantle, a former wrestler and manager, along with being a compatriot of Brody, spoke with Dark Side of the Ring as well. He mentioned the story. They were grooming, I heard, Jose Gonzalez to be the next Puerto Rican star. Bruiser Brody came in and had a match with Jose Gonzalez and just beat the shit out of him. He ate him up. The quote ends. Blood was everywhere. It was leaking out of Jose's mask and his head was all swollen from the beating. As Tony Atlas puts it, put it, he looked like a pumpkin. The beating was so bad that Jose had to be taken to the hospital to be treated. No shit, your face looks like a pumpkin. You've got to go to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, Jose declared, One day, I'm going to kill that man. Oh my god, dude. Are you admitting to your future crimes? (laughs) Building tensions. So now we've spoken on the issues between the two men, that neither liked each other, and that Jose wanted to get Brody back. But now, I'm sure you're all wondering, well, Matt, we understand that. What's the tipping point? What led us to the crime? Well, let's talk about that now, shall we? As I mentioned earlier, you may make good money as a wrestler, but the real big bucks come from owning a company. Brody had been having a lot of success over in Japan, and he had been making a lot of main event money. Brody had managed to save up a nice little nest deck and planned on buying into a wrestling company to make even more money for himself and his family. Brody had his eyes on Puerto Rico, the WWC specifically. And that brings us to a man named Victor Quinones. At the time, he was a minority owner of the company, and Brody approached him with a proposal to buy him out of his shares in the company. Victor and Brody took their discussion to Gorilla Monsoon, a wrestling legend. <laughs> Gorilla Monsoon. As a majority owner of WWC. And in the end, it looked like a deal was done. Now, everyone knows the old adage about opening up a can of worms, but that couldn't have been more accurate when it came to this situation. So here we have Brody, someone who is known to be no-nonsense when it comes to his opinions, and he wasn't that much different when it came to money. First off, it's believed that the owners of WWC had owed money to Brody for his wrestling appearances anyway, so when he went down there for the final time, he had made it known that he intended to get his money no matter how many people he had to beat up. Was he just blowing smoke? Well, perhaps, but I'll leave that for all you to decide. I don't know if he's blowing smoke, it just it does sound exactly like the sort of thing he'd do. He'd be like, I'm just gonna get into character, just gonna go down to the office and <laughs> just gonna make them pay me. Just gonna go in there and be like, yo, it's me. Bruiser Brody, they'd be like, oh, hi. What was his name? Steve or whatever. <laughs> You'd be like, no, 
I am Bruiser Brody. Get me my money, bitch. Secondly, with Brody now coming into the company as a minority owner, the belief among those close to the situation is that while the owners wanted Brody's money, they didn't want his input or opinions when it came to the company, which obviously wouldn't sit well with Brody at all, especially since his first demand was that they had to get rid of Jose Gonzalez. <laughs> Did he buy this guy's company just to fire him? This kind of gangster. Brody hated the man and simply wanted him out. No buts about it. And as part owner, he'd have the power and authority to do it. Jose knew that this was a possibility and the prospect of losing his livelihood because of a man he despised hated him. It wasn't the only stress he was under either. Only three months earlier, Jose's daughter had passed away in a terrible swimming accident. So all these factors combined to only throw gas on what was already a growing inferno. And it was about to burn out of control. Whether it was one of these things, all of them, or it had simply been a long time coming, Jose made a decision that would rock the wrestling world to its core. Blood in the locker room. Now, before we continue, I must put something out there. Much of the information regarding that night has been shrouded in mystery for over 30 years. Any official information from down in Puerto Rico is fairly skewed ever since, but we'll get to that soon. It wasn't until 2019 when much of the first-hand information was made known to the public from individuals who'd been there at the show, at the venue, or on the night of the crime, thanks to interviews as part of the critically acclaimed show Dark Side of the Ring, which I referenced heavily in this piece, as well as my other scripts regarding professional wrestling crimes. Is that, was this on Netflix? Did someone, did, uh, did Matt say that? Uh, I've never heard of it. I've never been advertised it. And they're probably like, because Simon has shown zero interest. The only sport Simon has watched on Netflix is Drive to Survive, which was incredible. I tried watching the tennis one and I like tennis. And I was just like, yeah, it's just not as good as Drive to Survive though, is it? Drive to Survive is extremely compelling. The day was June the 16th, 1988, and it seemed to start like any other. There had been a show the previous night, and so Brody got up to prepare for the next show that would take place that evening. And it was still very common for wrestlers to perform on uh, on a show one night and then have to wrestle the very next day, still sore and banged up for their last match. Oh, dude, these guys are getting, like, absolutely destroyed. You're just going to go back in there and like, the doctor will be like, don't do any physical activity for, like, a good week. Those stitches are going to pop. And then it's like, yeah, doc, but I got to go in and beat the sh out of someone tomorrow getting injured the same way that i got injured this time and the dog be like okay as long as your insurance is good i'll keep patching you up he met with tony atlas and together they went to the gym for a round of lifting and then went out to get a meal together the two of them had known each other for quite some time and were good friends at that point quote and then he turned to me at breakfast and he said i waited a long time to get in down here so i just got the impression that maybe just maybe that it bought in the company and he said you're going to see a lot of changes. Quote ends. Later on in the day, the wrestlers were getting ready to head to the venue, Juan Ramon Lobriel Stadium in Bayamon, a city near San Juan in Puerto Rico, for the show that night. It was on his way out of the hotel that Atlas noticed Brody sitting on the front steps with Dutch Mantle. Atlas asked Brody why he hadn't left for the venue yet, to which Brody responded that he was waiting on Jose Gonzalez, who was supposed to drive him to the arena. Yes, it was clear that neither man liked each other, but Brody was the main event and Jose was the booker. It was strange that he would simply leave a star attraction waiting in the cold, regardless of how he felt. Money, after all, was money. So, being a good friend, Atlas offered to give Brody a lift to the venue. Traffic was terrible, bumper to bumper, and all leading to the stadium since it was a sold-out show. That night, Brody was scheduled to wrestle Dan Spivey, a wrestler known for his time in both the WWF and WCW. At the show the night before, Brody had been assaulted and choked out in the ring with his own chain by Spivey and Abdullah the Butcher. It's two on one? <laughs> Who wrestled hardcore wrestling's nuts? So the people were clamoring to see the big bang, big man Brody get some payback on the cowardly heel Spivey. But 
Just as the three men got into the venue and into the locker room, there was a strange air of tension when they walked in. Jose Gonzalez, Carlos Colon, and Victor Jovica were all sitting in chairs in a circle around the locker room, not talking or having a conversation, just sitting there as the wrestlers arrived. As soon as Brody and the others arrived, Jose simply got up and left, not exchanging words or even a look at any of them. Now a bit of levity before things go bad. With some downtime before the show, Atlas got out his art pad and started drawing. He'd always had a love of art, and he'd gotten very good after many years of practice. Brody came over and took a look at his drawing, and a huge smile formed on his face. That is freaking fantastic. I wonder if you could do one for me. Atlas happily agreed, and so Brody went into his little personal bag and pulled out a picture of his son. Even being hundreds of thousands of miles away and across an ocean, Jeffrey was always on Brody's mind. His motivations were clear, and his promises were evident. Anything and everything Brody did, both good and not so good, he did for his son, he did for his wife, he did for his family. Which only made what occurred next all the worse. As he went to give Atlas the photo, Jose reappeared. Looking up, both Brody and Atlas saw him standing by the showers, a towel wrapped over his head. Brody, can I talk to you for a minute, please? Now, it's not uncommon even today for wrestlers to discuss matches and outcomes with bookers and producers beforehand, but that's not what this was, not at all. Brody simply nodded and followed him into the showers, his little bag in one hand, the picture of his son in the other. They might have had their issues, but it was clear that Brody didn't think anything of this. It was simply the booker wanting to talk to the main avenger about the match business as usual, no more, no less. And even if something was to go down, Brody was much larger than Jose and had proven before that he could beat the tar out of Jose if things got out of hand. Alice watched as Brody entered the showers, but then he noticed something else. Carlos Colon, another owner of the company, was watching Atlas from the other side of the locker room. Not suspicious at all, is it? And that's when it happens. As I'm looking at Carlos, I hear this sound. Ah! So I looked up. Brody was halfway hunched over. I thought Jose punched him in the stomach. That's what I thought. That's the first thought that came to mind. Damn, he hit Brody. I said, oh, this is going to be a fight. So then he hollers again. Ah! I looked at Jose's face and his eyes were bloodshot red. Then I saw the knife. Jose Gonzalez had brought a large kitchen knife into the locker room, hidden it under the towel wrapped around his head. After luring Brody into the locker room, he proceeded to stab Brody twice in the stomach and abdomen, puncturing his liver, piercing his lining, and severing several arteries. Atlas then leapt up from his chair and grabbed Brody around the waist, pulling him back as Jose went in to attack again. He was aiming to slice Brody's throat, but he only managed to get his ponytail, the knife being so sharp that it sliced the ponytail clean off. Good lord, that is a sharp knife. Carlos Colon jumped up and pinned Jose against the wall, telling him to stop and warning the other wrestlers away from the knife-wielding maniac. Atlas then lay Brody gently on the floor, noticed that Brody's abdomen had been cut open, and did what he could to keep Brody alive. And he looked up at me, and he said, Brother, don't let them hurt me no more. Please, brother, don't let them hurt me no more. He said, Don't let them. Not him. Them. That's why I don't know who the hell he was talking about. Who else is involved in this, I'm thinking. I said, ain't no fucking body gonna do anything to you. With Jose subdued by Victor, Carlos approached Brody and Atlas. Initially, Atlas didn't allow Carlos to get any closer, believing him to be involved, threatening to knock his head off if he got any closer. Carlos proclaimed his innocence of the whole deal, but Atlas didn't believe him, and frankly, I don't either. In this writer's honest opinion, while he might not have held the knife, I believe Carlos had knowledge of what Jose had planned and allowed it to happen. Again, simply my opinion, so take that with a grain of salt and about a hundred allegedlies. Brody, though, allowed Carlos to get in. Carlos. Brody, is there anything I could do for you? Brody, just take care of my family. A futile effort. 
Not long after, Dutch Mantel re-entered the locker room. There's a long quote here. The whole dressing room was chaotic. The first person I saw was Chris Youngblood. I asked him what had happened. He was almost hysterical as he said, Jose stabbed Brody. I still did not know what he meant, but as I looked deeper into the room, I saw Brody lying prone on the floor with several guys surrounding him. I thought that some guy named Jose had rushed into the room and attacked Brody. Everybody in PR is named Jose, so I just looked at Chris again and he said, Invader. Invader stabbed Brody. It was bedlam in the dressing room. Now everything started to move in slow motion. I remember walking over to where Brody was lying and just staring in disbelief. A doctor is always present in San Juan, and he was crying. Brody was conscious. And as I looked closer, I could see a stab wound about an inch long and deep with air bubbles escaping from it. Much later, the doctor told me that meant the blade had pierced the lung. Brody was telling promoter Carlos Coelan to take care of his family. I didn't see a lot of blood, but again, later, I learned that he was hemorrhaging internally. This can't be happening. I thought to myself, this can't be real. But it was real. I'm not a very religious person, but I eased over in a corner out of everyone's way and prayed for Bruiser. I then found myself looking through a plexiglass door that led into the shower. The door was kind of translucent plexiglass that distorted images somewhat, but I saw the invader and Victor Hovica screaming at each other in the shower room. It seemed as though invader was attempting to leave and Hovica was trying to stop him. The long quote ends. Jose stormed out of the shower, his shirt on, he got his keys, walked right out of the locker room, out of the venue, got in his car and left. Yep, that's right, this man, who at the very least had attempted bloody murder, then simply forced his way out of the building, was allowed to drive off. Are you kidding me? Well, I mean, he's just stabbed someone. They're not the police, what are you going to do, just hold him? Are you going to assume, the, just call the police? Like, I don't blame people for not, like doing a citizen arrest or whatever. Also, speaking about allegedly, some have cited that because Jose's shirt was torn, Brody must have gotten physical with Jose and was simply defending himself. To that, I have a counterpoint. How hard is it to rip a shirt, especially when the person wearing it is out of eye shot and there's bedlam going on all around? Victor and Jose were in that shower, all alone, and Victor could be heard screaming at Jose all the while there was chaos in the locker room. The sound of ripping cloth and fabric isn't loud, the yelling could have easily masked the noise. So yes, I believe Victor was the one who tore Jose's shirt, though again, that's simply my opinion. Because of the heavy traffic at the time, it took paramedics almost an hour to get to the stadium. What? It doesn't matter. It, because of heavy traffic, you're in an ambulance. Turn on the siren and people get out of the way. That's the point. All the while, Brody was bleeding out on the locker room floor. How can the response time for paramedics be an hour? I think in the UK, I don't know what it is here, but in the UK, it's like they have to get, isn't it? It's like 10 minutes. That's the, the the response time the ambulances aim for, I think. To add insult to injury when they tried to get him on the stretcher, they couldn't lift him because he was so big. So Tony Atlas, being a behemoth of a man himself, was the one who squatted down and lifted the 300-pound Brody. Brody, don't you drop me. Atlas, don't worry, brother. I curl more than what you weigh. With that, he gently laid Brody down on the stretcher, and they got him in the back of the ambulance. When the paramedic in the vehicle asked if anyone wanted to come with him to keep him company, Atlas didn't hesitate, jumping in the back and riding in the ambulance with him. This might just be me, but I believe anyone would be lucky to have a friend like Tony Atlas. No, Tony Atlas sounds like a legend. There's another long quote again. We get to the hospital, and he laid there for probably about 15 to 20 minutes. I got freaking tired of waiting, so I finally got one doctor that spoke a little bit of English, and I said, I've been telling people my friend's been stabbed. How come nobody's going to see him? He told me, he said, a stabbing here is like a cold in the US. It's no big deal. He said, 
Well, I will get him when I can, and turned to walk away from me. I grabbed him around the waist, yanked him up all the way to my shoulder, just like this. Uh, he does a shoulder over the mo he does a over the shoulder motion, and I carried the man to Brody. So finally he looked at Brody. <laughs> he lifted Brody's hand up, and it was like this the whole time. Just like this. This is quite hard to follow because there's obviously he's obviously doing motions. Um anyway, so he does this. Seeing this, Atlas plead. At the same time, he lifts his hand up. I remember I was taking his shoes off when I saw his feet and it was blue. Oh, no, 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 because I know this is real bad. <laughs> Sometimes when you read like a quote <laughs> like that's written as text from someone who's speaking super casually, it's very hard to follow. But so it seems like he went to the hospital. He gets upset because the doctors aren't seeing him. So he just carries a doctor over, be like, bro, look at him. And then his toes, are, his feet are blue, which is, I guess, a bad sign. Definitely a bad sign. Seeing this, Atlas pled with the doctor to get Brody into surgery now. They were running out of time. Only then did the, doctor, did the doctor call for aid as other doctors and nurses swarmed around them to tend to Brody. The fact that they waited that long and the fact that Atlas had to physically take a doctor to see his friends enraged him so much that he punched into the hospital wall up to his elbow. They got Brody into surgery, and they began working on him as best and as fast as they could. At that point, Atlas was banging on the operating room doors, yelling to be told what was going on. The doctor told him that Brody had suffered two eight-inch cuts, but that he was stable, and they were able to close up his abdomen, but his liver had been sliced and was giving them trouble. He assured Atlas that Brody was going to be okay, but that Atlas should leave since he was frightening the other staff and patients. Yeah, it's like, I get why he's upset, but then when he's in surgery, you've got to be like, bro, just chill. Just let them do their thing. He's in surgery. What more do you want? Atlas left the hospital and returned to the stadium. Back in the US, Brody's wife Barbara got a call early in the morning to inform her that Brody had been in an accident and that he was in bad shape and that she should come down to Puerto Rico immediately. So she bought two plane tickets and flew down to Puerto Rico with Jeff in tow, hoping that all would be well. Unfortunately, I think the chapter of this title speaks for itself, it was a futile effort. Had the ambulance gotten to the venue sooner, he might have had a chance. Had he not been left sitting in the hospital, his guts hanging out for 20 minutes before he was tended to, he might have had a chance. But that's not what happened. At 4.30am the next morning, the 42-year-old Bruiser Brody passed away from his injuries. It was July the 17th, 1988. According to Tony Atlas, Brody was still holding the photo of his son when he spoke his last words. Tell my little son I love him. And tell my wife I love her too. A travesty unanswered. So, now let's talk about the aftermath and investigation. And trust me when I say there's a good bit more aftermath than any sort of investigation of good. <laughs> Love the incompetent police. I mean, this has got to be open and shut, right? It's like he got stabbed by the Jose dude. Just get Jose in prison. Boom! Done! The first thing to establish here is that Jose Gonzalez returned to the building that night. After Brody had been taken to the hospital with Atlas by his side, Jose came back, a different shirt on and everything, and proceeded to keep going about his business as if nothing had happened. Bro, you just stabbed someone. It's time to flee to Lebanon. The blood on the floor in the dressing room hadn't even been cleared yet, and it was as if nothing had happened at all. And I know what you must be thinking. The other wrestlers must have stopped him, right? They must have restrained him and handed him over to the cops, but... No, they did not stop him whatsoever, and it was just business as usual. Hell, the show wasn't even cancelled, they just kept on trucking. I understand the idea that the show must go on, but one of your wrestlers, one of your fellow workers, has just been brutally stabbed and was fighting for his life. I think that would warrant the show being called off. I think Tony Atlas said it best when he described what happened after when he got back from the hospital. The thing was so horrible, and when I got back to the dressing room, it was more horrible than the stabbing. It was more horrible than him laying on the table. The most horrible thing that happened on that night was going back to that dressing room and hearing laughter. Dude, 
you just this dude just murdered someone and he's just going back and he's like hey the show must go on right guys right and all the guys are like yeah bro like, what the fuck? The locker room was alive with positivity, talking about how great the show was or how great the matches had gone. Adler's, having been there for Brody the whole night, was so infuriated that he took one of the chairs and tossed it across the room into the hallway. How could this be happening? Their fellow wrestler was on death's door and they were laughing as if it was just any other day. And where were the authorities, you might be asking? Well, they were there, I'll give them that, as they had been taking statements for some time after the attack had happened. After Atlas's outburst, one of the officers came up to him and asked him about it. Officer. Did you see what happened? Atlas. Hell yeah, I saw what happened. Officer. Did you get a look? Did you get a look at the fan that stabbed him? Atlas. What were you told? Officer. Everybody in here said that Brody was stabbed before he got in the dressing room, that a wrestling fan stabbed him in the hallway, and he stumbled into the dressing room. Now let's stop the quote right there for a moment. Yes, Simon, you read that correctly. Jose Gonzalez, as well as many other wrestlers in the locking room, locker room, had told the police that a fan, not Jose, had stabbed Brody as he was getting ready to enter the dressing room. It then stumbled in and fallen to the floor, which explained the pool of blood. Can you say bullshit? Yes. If you ask me, the locker room simply was nervous, if not outright frightened. They saw the booker of the show, their boss for the night, who had booked them to fly to the islands and wrestle, had just stabbed their main attraction before the show even started. So they wanted to keep their mouths shut and just go on as normal so they wouldn't get on his bad side too. Wait, that seems very risky. I mean, I guess they're not under oath or anything, so you can't just lie to the police. Isn't that going to be like obstruction of justice or something though? Like, I feel like you, there feels, it feels like there's a crime there, right? Have fun in Puerto Rico, man. That, and of course, they still wanted work. They were still being paid to wrestle, so they didn't want to speak out and jeopardize their livelihoods. That's all alleged, of course, but it makes the most sense to me. But Tony Atlas wasn't having any of it, and identified Jose Gonzalez as the attacker immediately, all while Jose was just sitting there, putting away his gear as if nothing had happened. Quote again, Atlas, that's a damn lie. That son of a bitch sitting right there is the one who stabbed him. Officer, you mean Vader? Atlas. Yes, I mean Vaser. That sucker right there. That's who stabbed Bruiser Brody. Ask everybody in the dressing room. Officer. They're all telling different stories. Atlas. Oh, lies. He's the son of a bitch that stabbed him. From the word go, there almost seemed to be a big disconnect between the wrestlers that had their statements taken and the police on the scene. As Tony was telling the first responders his side of the story, it almost seemed like they didn't believe him at first. Why might that be? Well, the idea is a simple one, and one that only hindered the investigation and legal proceedings going forward. They thought it was staged. Back in the 80s, the curtain had already started to be pulled back with regards to pro wrestling, and while many still believed it to be real, there were those, including the police, that thought something like this was just a plot device to further the show to progress the storylines. Bro, police, just be like, hello, radio, central dispatch, or whatever, and just be like, is there someone at the hospital? Is he in there? Has he been stabbed? And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, he's stabbed. He's in surgery. And they'll be like, okay, <laughs> done. It's real. Let's carry on. Let's take some statements. So it took some convincing for them to actually start taking the matter seriously. So the show continued as planned, and the fans were none the wiser. Atlas also paid his part that night, but that was only because he needed to be paid. After he got back to the locker room, though, he was approached by another wrestler named Savio Vega, a legend in his own right out of Puerto Rico. As if to affirm what I spoke about earlier, Vega told Atlas that he had gone to his room and had packed his bag for him, and that Atlas should not go back to his room. Why? Because they were looking for him. They were looking for him because he was talking. Because he was telling the truth to the police. Bro, there's too many witnesses. How long are you gonna keep how long do you think you keep this silent for? I don't know about you, 
but that would have made my blood run, blood run cold in an instant. After word got out the next morning that Brody had passed away, the other wrestlers mentioned how they didn't understand how this could have happened, and they didn't even know if the police were investigating the attack or not. You see, Carlos Cole and the WWC were a big deal in Puerto Rico, and still are to this day, so it seemed feasible that the police didn't want to get involved. Bro. Puerto Rico is America, right? It's like, um, I know my mate from there. He's got, he's an American. It's like a, it's not a state, but it's, is it a territory? Or something like that? This is like, and I'm not saying like America's without corruption, but this seems like some proper like, you know, South America style corruption. Many of the wrestlers simply wanted to get out of the territory, oh, okay, territory, there you go, and never look back. But Tony Atlas still went down to the police, and regardless of the danger, he told his side of the story in its entirety. Soon enough, several other wrestlers stepped forward with their version of what happened that day. They seemed to give the police the boost they needed, with one officer being quoted as saying to Dutch Mantel, You tell Carlos Colon that we run this island, not him. And with that, Jose Gonzalez was arrested for the murder of Frank Goodish, aka Bruiser Brody. The wrestlers, including Tony Atlas and Dutch Mantel, packed up all their stuff, made arrangements, and many of them left Puerto Rico to continue working, awaiting the summons to appear in court to testify against Jose when the time came. As all this was going down, Barbara had landed with Jeff in Puerto Rico, and she was met at the airport by Abdullah the Butcher. Despite portraying themselves to be bitter rivals on screen, he and Brody had been good friends, and it was on Abdullah to inform his wife and son that it passed away. It didn't properly sink in for Barbara until she was brought to the morgue to identify the body of her husband, the father of her child, and the love of her life. She was devastated, and Jeff was an emotional mess, crying nonstop for hours upon hours in the hotel. But Barbara knew she had to remain strong and make the arrangements to bring Brody home. Barbara made the calls over Simple Wake in Puerto Rico, with the ones in attendance being herself, her son, a number of his fellow wrestlers, and several Puerto Rican wrestling promoters and fans. Afterward, Brody's body was cremated, and Barbara returned to the mainland US with, her, with his ashes. Wrestling fans the world over were distraught, and the whole community was in mourning over the loss of a beloved superstar. So what about Jose Gonzalez? Well, at the end of the intro, I'm sure you remember that I said the murder of Bruiser Brody got Bruder Bruiser Brody simply got away with it, and that's because he did. What? He was arrested about three to four days after the attack, but bail was posted for him immediately, and he never saw the inside of a cell of any kind. The next thing anyone knew, the trail came and the trail went. Now, I know you must be thinking, well, Matt, what sort of details can you tell us? What happened? Well, to the first question, I can say nothing much because there aren't many details available. And to the second question of what happened, well, it was a total and utter sham. The trial only lasted for a few days, and the defense team went with the idea of it being self-defense. They say that Jose Gonzalez, who had brought the knife to the locker room, mind you, was confronted and attacked by Brody. Bringing the knife to the locker room is like some premeditation right there. Like, what the f***? Jose then stabbed Brody twice in self-defense. Now, everything we've heard up until this point tells us that that's bullshit, pure and simple. But in the end, it worked. Jose Gonzalez was set free and judged not guilty on the grounds of self-defense. So, why did it work? Well, first off, the murder weapon, that knife, was never found. Now, I'm not saying that Jose simply got rid of the knife after he was allowed to leave the scene without a struggle, and that maybe he had some help from his business partners in doing so. No, no, I'd obviously never say such a thing. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> like, where did the knife go then? The second reason is because, like I said before, Brody had the reputation of being this large, wild man, this insane individual who would snap and attack his opponents mercilessly in the ring. Wow, this is the problem when you blend fiction with reality too much like where your fictional persona on screen people think you're that off screen as well 
So the judge and jury were easy to sway in the direction that Brody was his character. He was this dangerous person who just attacked Jose unprovoked, especially when it was known that the two of them disliked each other. In the words of Dutch Mantel, Jose never testified that they believed what his attorney put out, that he was merely acting in self-defense. The feds in Puerto Rico believed wrestling was real. That was the major reason that Jose was acquitted, because they believed Brody was this character, this wild-looking psychopath, hulking, a hulking figure, and his defense was self-defense. And finally, remember the police said that they would reach out to wrestlers for a court appearance? Well, not a single wrestler was present in the court on any days of the trial. Nobody was called on, nobody was heard from, and that helped set Jose Gonzalez free as no one was there to challenge his narrative of the situation. Tony Atlas, what's the prosecution doing? Why are you not summoning these people? Tony Atlas was never sent a subpoena. He never heard from anybody, and Dutch Mentel did get a subpoena, only it was ten days late after the verdict had been passed. Injustice isn't even a strong enough word. Wait. You're subpoenaing someone afterwards? What, just they sent it by mail? <laughs> like, what? And that brings our story to a close, ladies and gents. This whole situation, from the attack to the trial, all stinks of a cover-up and corruption, if you ask me. Carlos Colon, Victor Jovica, deny any involvement to this day and dismiss any claim of a cover-up. The common sense seems to counteract what they've said, <coughs> allegedly. But in the end, Brody was gone, and Jose was free. And to this day, that's simply how it stands. As for Jose Gonzalez, well, he officially retired last year, and he's alive today, aged 76. Sure, he held some titles and was cheered on in his home island of Puerto Rico, but no one knew the name Jose Gonzalez. No one knew the name Invader, and for a time he was simply relegated to appearing at children's birthday parties. Nothing more than a glorified clown. And while he may never see any legal justice, it's a touch satisfying to see that his career and any sort of success he hoped for fizzled out completely and utterly after what he did. Yes, good. And with that, let us remember Frank Goodish. Bruiser Brody, an amazing wrestler, but also an amazing father and husband. Sure, he had his faults. Yes, he could be too stiff and too violent. And yes, he took his character and how he handled it maybe a bit too seriously. But at the end of the day, he loved the business of pro wrestling and everything he did, he did for his family. To this day, Bruiser Brody is seen, remembered, and revered as a wrestling legend, an icon, and an innovator in the hardcore and brawling styles of professional wrestling. In 2019, Brody was honored by the WWE by being inducted into the Hall of Fame class of 2019 as part of their legacy wing. I think Tony Atlas said it best. Every dog has his day. You cannot kill a legend. See, legends never die. So if that was Jose's thing, was to kill a legend, he failed miserably. And that's where we end today's episode. Thank you so much for being here. If you enjoyed it, leave a review, a rating, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.